0: Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as his people. In this episode we will discover the mystery of water and blood. Now these together reveal a third hidden element of our baptism in Christ. There is an interesting correlation in scripture between water and blood. We read in 1 John chapter 5. It says, "This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ." Not only by water, but by water and blood. So water and blood together, these are a mystery. So let's discover their significance. We first see the correlation in the first of the ten plagues in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, it says, The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Later, during the Exodus, we see water and blood associated with the Mosaic covenant. We read in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, Israel. And you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. As part of the covenant, the Lord prescribed a priestly ritual for cleansing and purifying of leopards in their homes. It is written in Leviticus 14 As for the living bird, he, the priest, shall take it, the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and dip them in the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. Interestingly, in the Talmud and other writings of the sages, the rabbis refer to leprosy as the Redeemer's disease, and they reference by name the future Messiah as the leper of the house of Rebbe. In support, they cite Isaiah chapter 53, where it reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And lastly, we see water and blood connected to the fulfillment of the new covenant. Yeshua washed the feet of his disciples with water and then officiated the new covenant with wine, a symbol of the blood he would soon shed on the cross. We read in John chapter 19, it says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So Israel's whole existence appears to be mysteriously wrapped in symbols of water and blood from her deliverance from Egypt to the covenant the Lord made with them at Mount Sinai to the cleansing and purification ritual given to the priests and the officiation of the new covenant in Christ these symbols in the old testament and their subsequent fulfillment in the new testament are called types and antitypes an antitype is not a replacement of what is written but rather its fulfillment or completion and they are often associated with prophecy Now, some Christians incorrectly use types and antitypes to diminish the prophetic significance of Israel's future redemption, suggesting the new is somehow a replacement for the old. And this theology is called supersessionism or replacement theology. Contrary, the Old and New Testaments are intricately connected as one continuing and unfolding story of God's love and redemption for Israel and now for all humanity. And because Christ was a mystery concealed from the foundation of the world, we can only see the fulfillment of biblical prophecy often when we look backward. We then understand that Christ is the fulfillment, the antitype, of all Old Testament scripture, which were the types and shadows of Yeshua. Hence it was spoken in Matthew 5, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So to the Old Testament saints, Christ and the promise of his resurrection were concealed. They were hidden, including the greater mystery of the Gentiles, who would later join Israel to become one new man in Christ. Now regarding the resurrection, it is written in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, therefore, baptism is a fulfillment, an antitype, of the water and the blood, which are types that appear in the Old Testament and are the fulfillment of God's promise concerning our redemption and future resurrection in Christ. And since Christ came by water and blood, our baptism requires the same. This leads to the core of our discussion, where we explore the mysterious symbolism of water and blood, and how these two are now fulfilled and revealed through Christ's baptism and now ours. Regarding living water, we read in Genesis chapter 1, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The sages expound that the hovering spirit is that of the Messiah, the soul of creation itself, for they tell us, that in the Messianic era is the full realization of the world that God envisioned at the time of creation. And so it is written in John chapter 1, it says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Before God sent forth John, a Kohen of the Aaronic priesthood, to baptize Israel with water, he gave the Jewish people a purification ritual through water immersion, called a mikvah which is an immersion pool, similar to a baptism pool. The mikveh was a type for the coming redemption of the Messiah. To the nation of Israel, the mikvah offered a remarkable gift of purity and holiness, even if only temporary, until Christ would come and fulfill the law of Moses. Jewish law recognizes the world's natural bodies of water as waters of divine source, for example, oceans, rivers, wells, and spring-fed lakes. These living waters are considered pure because no human has assisted in their formation. And Jewish law necessitates the construction of man-made mikvahs to collect these divine sources of water for ritual purification. At Mount Sinai, before the officiation of the Old Covenant, the Israelites were required to consecrate themselves and according to the oral tradition, they used a mikvah. Miriam's well, referenced in the Talmud, is believed to be the spring that miraculously provided the mikveh water for their consecration. And later it is believed that Aaron and his sons were consecrated into their priesthood by their immersion in this same mikveh. After construction of the tabernacle and then the temple in Jerusalem, the priests and any Jewish person who desired to enter the house of God were required to immerse themselves in a mikveh. And on the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, the high priest was commanded first to immerse himself in a mikveh, lest he died in the presence of God. Although not explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament, the water libation ceremony observed in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot, was an oral tradition received at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given to Israel. All burnt sacrifices in the temple were accompanied by a flower offering and a pouring of wine on the altar, representing the blood of the covenant. And additionally, during the libation ceremony, water taken from the temple mikveh was poured on the altar as a libation that accompanied the daily morning sacrifice. Now, today, the mikvah is an integral part of a conversion to Judaism. It's also used for purification before burial, purification of a bride and a groom before their wedding, and most significantly for monthly purification by menstruant women and after childbirth. In other words, the mikveh is integral to every aspect of Jewish life. It brings us full circle from our birth to our marriage and our eventual death. Just as we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. The rabbis prophetically teach that the mikveh waters have the power to purify and consecrate. And I love this quote that reveals their insight into its hidden mystery. They say, The mikvah personifies both the womb and the grave, the portals to life and the afterlife. In both, the person is stripped of all power and prowess. In both, there is a mode of total reliance, complete abdication of control. Immersion in the mikveh can be understood as a symbolic act of self-abnegation, the conscious suspension of the self as an autonomous force. In so doing, the immersing Jew signals a desire to achieve oneness with the source of all life, to return to a primeval unity with God. Immersion indicates the abandonment of one form of existence to embrace one infinitely higher. In keeping with this theme, immersion in the mikvah is described not only in terms of purification, revitalization, and rejuvenation, but also and perhaps primarily as rebirth. So, yes, the mikvah is a symbol, a type of rebirth representing the full circle of life. And the mystery revealed to us in Christ who is the fulfillment of our rebirth in Him, is that we become a new creation, and therefore the antitype. As it is written in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. If the waters of the mikveh are a type for the coming redemption of the Messiah, then we can correlate its antitype and fulfillment to the words of Yeshua when he spoke of living water. He said, for example, in John chapter 4, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then in John chapter 7, he said, He who believes in me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In Revelation chapter 7, we read, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Word of God comes to life when we understand that Yeshua's reference to living water was a direct correlation to His redemptive gift and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, He was speaking about our baptism. And so therefore, Christ is our mikvah and He is our baptism. He is the living water of God and the Spirit. Yeshua promised to eternally live within and eternally flow out of the believer like fountains of living water. Flowing in for our healing, as we read in John chapter 5, it says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And flowing out for the healing of the nations. It says in Ezekiel chapter 47, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. Along the bank of the river on this side and of that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. It is through the living water of Christ who is our baptism that we are given the ministry of healing and reconciliation and this primarily for the restoration of Israel and all the nations. Yes, it is the church who is called to rebuild and restore the kingdom of God As we read in Isaiah chapter 58, it says, You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring, whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So we've been talking about water, living water. But now let's learn about the blood. Our sages tell us that the soul is clothed in the blood of a man or a woman, giving life to our physical body. As we read in Leviticus chapter 17, it says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, which is the soul that sustains physical and corporeal life." And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Per Jewish law, the time from the beginning to completion of a woman's menstrual cycle in Hebrew is called nida. The feminine noun nida means separated or isolated, and it is brought about by a woman's impurity called tumah in Hebrew, impurity of the blood. Now, tumah is a negative type, and we will see in a moment the positive anti-type. Medieval biblical commentator Abraham Ibn Ezra wrote, that the word nida is related to the term menadichem, meaning those that cast you out. For this reason, a mensurate woman was separated from her husband, lest she rendered him also ritually unclean. But after immersion in a mikveh, she and her husband could be united again. Tuma is the root word of the word terumah. Now, the terumah was the gift or offering of immeasurable value brought to the sons of Aaron to build the tabernacle. The deeper meaning of the word terumah is derived from two separate roots that mean both to separate, suggesting to sanctify, and to elevate, meaning as in to bring us back to God. Judaism teaches that death, which originated from sin, is the harbinger of the tumah, or impurity. And this is the negative type. So therefore, the woman's impurity of blood, which rendered her ritually impure, is also the picture of Israel's and hence all humanity's present sinful condition. We read in Isaiah chapter 59, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. The positive antitype, on the other hand, as in the fulfillment, is the blood of Christ that now cleanses us from all sin. And once again, Tuma is a negative type, referring to Israel's separation from God because of her iniquity, while Teruma is a positive anti type and a fulfillment of the gift of God, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to sanctify Israel through the blood of Christ so that he would take her as his bride and a holy people unto himself. So this gives clarity to the verse where Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The woman is also a picture of the bride of Christ, and of course, the church, the antitype is the fulfillment of God's promise that Yeshua would marry Israel and all the nations that he would graft into her. He said in John chapter 10, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now sadly, Israel remains separated from her God because of the transgression and rejection of her Messiah. And it's not that God has permanently abandoned her. It's just that she seems unable, at least for a season, to receive Christ and therefore the Father's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in Romans chapter 11 that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And Yeshua also warned Israel about her rejection when he said in Luke chapter 19, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Israel's rejection of her Messiah has brought riches to the nations, but unfortunately also much difficulty and travail for the Jewish people. And yet these trials are ultimately for Israel's rebirth as a people and a nation. Israel's final redemption will come like a woman in labor, giving birth to her child through much pain and suffering. As we read in Micah chapter 4, it says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. In Isaiah chapter 66, we read, Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And lastly, in Romans chapter 8, we read, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. At the end of this difficult season, God's redemptive plan for Israel will be incredible. And not only for the church, but for the whole world. As it says in Romans chapter 11, verse 15, For if there Israel being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? Now, up to this point, we have focused our discussion on two symbols of our baptism in Christ, water and blood. So we're now going to introduce a third symbol, fire. Under the Mosaic law, water and blood were combined in the purification ritual of the red heifer, called para aduma, the purification ritual for an Israelite who had been exposed to a dead person. The rabbis proclaim that the combining of cedar wood and hyssop into the altar of sacrifice of the red heifer will draw down the sanctity of God from above. And the placing of mikwa water, or living water, into the ashes of the red heifer, which is blood commingled with fire, called the sanctification of the purifying waters, kiddush mechatat, is then believed, and I have added emphasis here, to draw down the ultimate revelation of God the Father through the manifestation of Christ the Son. This manifestation from the most supremely sanctified levels of divinity Kadosh Ha'elion that utterly transcends this world. In other words, the combining of living water and blood with the fire of sacrifice represents the full baptism of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And the Apostle John also compared the Holy Spirit to fire when he said, in Matthew chapter 3, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus said in Luke 24, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. So let's revisit our earlier discussion about the procreation and childbirth and how these are a type for us becoming a new creation in Christ, which is the anti-type and the fulfillment. Yeshua used this typology when he spoke to Nicodemus. He was one of the temple priests, and he said to him, Very truly, I tell it to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus could not understand or see this mystery of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so he asked Yeshua, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Yeshua lovingly answers him, saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirits. Yeshua was trying to teach Nicodemus about the soon-coming antitype and baptism of the Holy Spirit and its correlating types, symbolized by water and blood. He was impressing on Nicodemus's spiritual understanding of the ritual sacrifice of the red heifer, which is water and blood commingled with fire. We can now conclude from this story with Nicodemus and what we have been learning about water and blood and fire, that the full baptism of the Holy Spirit comes in multiple levels. The living water is for our cleansing and inner healing. And also the communion with wine symbolizing the blood and the fire of Christ is for our purification and sanctification. So when we first come to Christ, we receive His living water that cleanses and heals us. And we also receive His peace. As we read in John chapter 20, it says, And with that, He, Jesus, breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are then given what some theologians refer to as the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this second baptism is the refining fire, which is the blood of the Holy Spirit. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This differentiation does not suggest that we cannot receive both simultaneously, nor that our immediate healing and sanctification is now suddenly complete. No, we must continue to receive Yeshua's peace and healing, and we must continue to receive His ongoing purification and sanctification until He returns for us. But we do not lose our salvation. The refining baptism of the Holy Spirit also brings His power. As we read in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes with tongues of fire on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this part of our baptism comes through obedience and service to Christ and may lead to an uncomfortable condition, which is our suffering. We read in Philippians chapter 1, it says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And Yeshua told his disciples, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Therefore, we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So being a Christian means that we are likely to be persecuted for His namesake. And this is our fiery ordeal. But this persecution will also bring about our refinement. And even more, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, "Therefore." since Christ suffered in his body, harm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in this body is done with sin. Yes, this part of our baptism not only refines us, but it also burns away our sin. And God has called us to be baptized in living water, blood, and fire. Water that cleanses, heals, and brings inner peace and blood and fire that sanctifies, refines, and empowers. And the first is unto our salvation, but the second is for our ongoing sanctification and transformation. So as Christians, we are called to fast, which is our daily sacrifice, but if necessary, even willing to sacrifice our lives for Christ. So what does our daily sacrifice look like? Well, we read in Isaiah chapter 58, the Lord said, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now we can certainly abstain from food and other necessities. As Yeshua instructed us in Matthew chapter six, he said, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But I believe the greater fast and therefore the greater sacrifice is to serve Jesus Christ unconditionally and without reward. Just as we read in Matthew chapter 20, it says, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Yes, we serve Christ by feeding and sheltering the poor, but also by freeing the captives and sharing the bread of life and His living water with them, even unto death, so that we might save some of them. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.